Well, good evening. It's always good to be with you here. Um, we're going to be looking at uh, Matthew chapter 6, if you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 6. Uh, we have before us in this chapter a problem that we regularly confront in our lives. Uh, not everyone appears to struggle with this, but it is, in fact, universal. Uh, we're talking about the struggle with fear and anxiety. Uh, it could be fear of death. It could be fear of losing a loved one, of a, a bankruptcy, something we've seen in the last uh, two, three weeks. People rushing on banks, wondering if their money is safe and protected. Uh, what our passage shows us again and again is that our fear ultimately comes from one place, uh, from our view of God. And before I finish, I hope to convince you that all of these fears that we'll examine go back to a violation of that first commandment. Uh, have no other gods before me. To the people described in our passage here, something is more important than God. Something is more worthy of their time and affection. Something is feared more than God. Something is loved more than God. Something is more important to God than God. And that is, in the moment, our God, what is most ultimate to us. And so we'll also find hope that Christ fully assures us that He has and He will continue to provide for us day by day. And so we begin in verse 19, uh, going down to verse 34. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For I will, either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will He not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Well, the, the first example of fear is one that on the surface doesn't appear to be fear. It's actually manifests more like greed or vanity. Uh, suppressed fear, though, indeed. But notice verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. 
Jesus is referring to all types of goods and, and assets that people have, uh, money, houses, land, any possession. But he's not concerned so much with how much stuff you have as he is your motive in, in having it, in owning it. Are you serving Christ and his kingdom with what he has given you? Or, or are you serving yourself? And we see here perhaps the culmination in verse 33 of the, of the issue. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That, that is where the, the emphasis is, the accent. It's not so much how much we have or even do we have more than we need, but what are we doing with what he has given us? And this truth, I think, is emphasized in that well-known question. Do you possess your possessions or do they possess you? I remember years ago in college, it must have been 30 years ago, we were in the end of our spring semester and we decided to go out and do a little celebrating and we went and played some harmless pranks on some of our friends and we went to a friend's house and he happened to own a fairly new BMW. And so naturally we rolled it with toilet paper and we put on the windshields removable polish, of course, and not long after that he found out who did it. I wasn't there, but he yelled and screamed at whoever was there. And I remember thinking, I didn't quote verse 19 to him, but I remember thinking, is that BMW just a little bit too important to you? Laying up treasures in heaven can, can refer to anything, though. You don't have to have a BMW or a, you can own an old pickup truck like I do. Uh, I don't want to spend any time debunking the idea that we shouldn't have nice things or that we shouldn't save. Clearly we should do that. And if you can have nice things, then by all means get them. But do you possess your possessions or do they possess you? And how, how do you know the answer to this question? Well, examine a few things. How did you get these wealth, this wealth and possessions? You know, did, did you willingly work long hours and ignore your family and other priorities? And, do you, have you regularly worshipped and put God first? Have you sought first God in His kingdom? Or have you sought wealth? Oftentimes, I think the best way to identify and to examine what's most important is to learn to study our emotions. Are you fearful that you might not have enough? Are you fearful of what other people think of you? You know, do these issues keep you up at night? Uh, we're looking here at Matthew 6 at hoarding and self-indulgence, but it often springs from fear. And if you look closer at the passage, you'll, you're likely dealing with the same foundational fear in verse 19 as you are in verse 25. Notice verse 25. He says, Jesus says, therefore I tell you, and he, he's continuing the same idea from verse 19. He's saying, therefore, do not be anxious about your life. You know, he, he's not moving on to a new subject. He's further illustrating the same problem that people are afraid of something. And, and they respond in fear. People who, as we'll see, have placed something above God. These people want to be assured that if they need something, they will always have it. You know, that they will be protected in life. And many times, I think, gathering and collecting serves that purpose, at least for a time. And some, though, without knowing it, give their body and soul to this collecting and to this gathering. Uh, 
money is, is often what appears to be the solution, but people don't realize that along the way, it takes a toll on you. That it has a, an insidious dynamic to it. That it can take over your life and it can leave behind nothing but false promises. I read recently in a USA Today story, uh, a study looking back in the years 2007 to 2010, the great financial crisis that on average 10,000 people more committed suicide during that period than in any other. Their money was gone and so went their hope. As you look back at the passage, Jesus is giving us reasons not to depend and to, to put our hope, to, to live our lives based upon these false and empty promises. Uh, the first reason he gives us is very obvious. It, it, even to unbelievers, this is only a temporary solution. You know, Notice that in verse 9, the question, why should we not lay up earthly treasures? Why shouldn't we devote all of our time and our energy to making money and to enjoying it? Jesus says, because moth and rust will destroy it. Now, I don't know that that's a problem in modern homes, but in back in the day, they would come, they would lay eggs in the pockets, and it wasn't long before you would have holes in your clothing. I think today, though, what's more than likely to, to wear out your clothes is the washing machine, you know, especially if you shop where I do and buy the quality that I buy. It doesn't take more than a year, and you can tell. The iron doesn't straighten them. They're faded. Or if you have children or, or grandchildren, they, you know, completely unintending with, with those messy fingers, they grab your arm or your leg, and they stain your favorite suit. You know, it, it, if that doesn't destroy your clothes, the fashion marketers will. What you bought even a few years ago is likely out of style. But if you hang on to it long enough like I do, it'll come back in style. <laughs> His point is simple. Don't live your life for things that will quickly pass away. Remember verse 25. Is not life more than food? The body more than clothing? Clothing and style and personal appearance can be a false god. Now, they're important within measure. But they're a mistress that they will quickly abandon you. You know, the... Jesus isn't limiting it to clothing, though, in appearance. He, he's applying this to everything. He, he goes on and says that rust destroys it or, or thieves break in and, and steal it. Just the other day, I, I was repairing a 10-year-old fence that over time uh, my dog had worn down barking at the neighbor's dog. And just the elements, I noticed all this rot. In 10 years, the, the hinges were rusted. It was ready to fall. It's like that with every material good that we have in this world, it will have to be replaced. But if it's not the rot and the decay that destroys what we own, thieves can break in and steal it. You know, think about how many billion-dollar industries exist just to protect wealth. You know, I read a report recently that the global cybersecurity industry, just one industry, is well over $200 billion annually. Some of you know the name Usain Bolt, seven-time gold medal winner, was robbed of more than $12 million by one of his financial advisors, taking just about everything he had. Everything ultimately will be surrendered, though I hope you 
never the victim of such a crime. But in time, death will take everything we have. You know, Jesus doesn't touch on this, but too many places to consider do. Ecclesiastes 2 comes to mind. Solomon is, is looking at the world without faith as if this was all there was. And he says that I hated my toil because I, I had to leave it to a man who comes after me and who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool. You know, all we have ever accomplished and collected will be handed over to others. So we don't live our lives for these things. That's the message. Don't be possessed by your possessions. And you'll find as you are not possessed by your possessions, fear, anxiety, worry, or less of a problem. Don't be possessed by what will fade or be stolen or what will be handed over at death. But Jesus gives us an even greater reason not to lay up treasures in heaven in verse 21. And this is the second and, and perhaps the most important reason. Uh, the pursuit of wealth will subtly take over our souls. Because we were created to worship. We were created to worship and serve God. And, and when sin entered the world, we didn't cease to worship. We just turned worship inward and, and to other things that God has created, but not to God. That, that is why that first commandment is central and foundational. That we'll either worship God or we'll worship something in this world. Jesus said it clearly in John 8, that he who practices sin is a slave to sin. And we will be enslaved by what we worship, either to God who alone can satisfy or to the passing pleasures of this world. But in our, our passage, Jesus states it like this, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know, in, in a short phrase, he exposes the dangers of focusing on building wealth in this world. And his point is simple. In the, in the process of gathering and collecting, your heart will slowly grow fond of what you have, will begin to possess it and even guard it. Your treasure is that what you set your mind and your affections on. And, and people don't realize that, but wealth is a cruel taskmaster. Now, some of you have probably learned that. I, I'm not in that club yet, but it takes a lot of time and money and worry the more you have it. As we look back, though, he, Jesus gives us a parable that develops this idea of our treasure. In verse 22, he says that the eye is the lamp of the body, and if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. He's giving us an analogy about how we see the world around us. The eye is the gateway. It allows light to enter, and I can see you, and you can see me. Now, he's ultimately applying it to the spiritual life. And the eye here is ultimately talking about our mind, and even our affections, our soul, what we set our minds upon, what we love most. If it is affected, if it is defective, if our minds are, all that we do will be defective. You know, if your mind is bad, like a bad eye, you'll set your mind on possessions, on relationships, on good things, but not essential things. And that will become our treasure. You know, it's a slow drift that carries us away from the Lord. Uh, but any worldly, even any good and needed thing in this world can do it. 
desiring love, for example, or respect, or, or security, or a better job, or you fill in the blank. Anything can grow from a desire to a demand and take the place of God. Well, how do we know if we're drifting away? Scripture is full of warnings. You know, perhaps the best way we know is, is through anger. You know, if not fear, then perhaps anger. We, we see this in verse 24, don't we? Why can't we serve two masters? Well, we're going to hate one or we're going to love the other. We, have, we will be devoted to God or we'll despise Him. We'll be devoted to our money. If, we de, if we're devoted to our money, we're going to be despising God. If, if we love our family more than God, ultimately one will give and the other will prevail. I'm reminded of a sign that we have in our kitchen right where the coffee maker is. I don't have a problem with coffee. I have a problem without it. And maybe, maybe you know what I mean. It's just sometimes our problems don't surface in life until we don't get what we want. And then we realize, I really do have a problem with this. Israel in, in Numbers 13 comes to mind. It's a perfect example. You don't need to turn there. But the 12 spies return from looking at the land of Canaan and 10 give a bad report, 2 give a good report. You know, there were giants in the land. They would be killed along with their children. And instantly spread, spreads fear throughout the congregation. But it's not long before that fear morphs into anger. And it's all born of a lack of faith. You know, the eye was defective. The, the, the mind, the, the majority saw giants and saw their children being slaughtered. They had forgotten the miracles of leading them out of Egypt and providing them manna. They, they, weren't looking, they were looking at the same situation, and yet only Joshua and Caleb were looking at it through the eyes of faith. But fear changes to anger, and then anger turns into bitter accusations, and they even accuse God of, of leading them to a certain death. Jesus' analogy is applied perfectly there. Their minds are darkened. And of course, anger and fear will be the fruit that they bear. So if you want to know whether or not you're trusting God, examine your anger. Examine your fear. You know, what may start off as fear can quickly change into anger when we don't get what we want. And it's a clear sign that something in our lives has been assigned greater value than God. Well, getting back to Matthew 6, you know, we've seen that hoarding wealth is no solution. It will decay. We've also observed that hoarding is a sign that we're being given over to fear. But how do we stop it? You know, uh, what is the solution to fear? Well, the first step is, of course, understanding the problem and calling it by name. Because that is often our problem, is we misdiagnose our problem. You know, what is really wrong? It's not that we live in a world where there are scarce resources or that we might starve or that there may be, an, there may be a recession and that inflation is rising or any challenge depending year by year. It's, that's not the real problem. The problem is that our minds have been darkened. They have been deceived temporarily, perhaps. And we've not seen that the real culprit is a lack of faith. Jesus makes it clear, verse 30, Oh, you of little faith, he says. Again, the problem isn't that we, that we have enemies. We, we, we certainly do. The problem is our eyes, our minds. 
They've been taken off of God's abundant goodness, His endless supplies and power and strength and provision. The mind set on collecting and hoarding has taken it and has misplaced it upon material goods that thieves can steal, that moths can destroy. You know, we, we become like Israel and, and, and say we should go back to Egypt, appoint a new leader and go back to Egypt as if that would really work. Their minds were darkened and they thought the miracles had dried up. The first step then is identifying the problem. It's fear, it's, it's anger, it's, it's sin, it's a lack of faith. And ask ourselves, what have we set our hope on? You know, what, what brings great comfort to us often? You know, or, or what do we fear? Or what are we angry about when it's taken away? Now, I know we all get a little cranky when we're hungry. And if the food is, is laid out, it can be a little confusing. But if you consider what makes you angry, what gives you the greatest hope, it ultimately must be Christ, His character. Uh, and that is exactly what is highlighted here. Jesus takes us through the essential attributes of God, some of them. And He's saying to us, exercise your faith, set your mind on these attributes, on these qualities of God that are never changing. And the three are highlighted here. And the first one, it's very plain, that God is our provider. Notice verse 26. Look at the birds of the heavens. Your heavenly Father feeds them. Now, He, he points to one creature, but you, you might as well include all of them. He feeds every bird and every beast of the field. The psalmist says that He opens His hand and He satisfies every living thing. Now, the paradox is that many people believe that God is able to provide for them. Many people believe that He has provided for them. But the real sticking point is will He continue to provide day by day, especially when I sin regularly and blow it? Or will I exhaust His grace the Psalms are full of such doubts. Psalm 74 is a good example. I'll just read a section. Why do you cast us off forever? It seems like forever. He's struggling. Remember your congregation which you have purchased from of old. Remember Mount Zion where you have dwelt. Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. The enemy lies all around, much like in numbers. It's tempting to just see with natural eyes and to forget the promises of God. He says, how long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Struggling with patience, the timing of God. But then the same psalm ends with faith. Yet God, my King, is from of old. Working salvation in the midst of the earth, you divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You split open springs and brooks. You dried up ever-flowing streams. The problem is not so much doubting God is able to provide what we need. Often our struggle comes when we don't remember that not only is He able, but He's willing to meet your needs. He is desirous to meet your needs. He is compared to a father who loves his son. What father would deny a legitimate need to his children? You know, he delights to provide for us. We have to remember that. We have to call it to mind day by day. 
This is implied in this attribute of God as our provider. And if you look back to verse 30, Jesus highlights one more attribute of God related to His provision. We see specifically God's care for His people. You know, you have the argument from the lesser to the greater there in verse 30. He says, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is, lives a very short time, will He not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? He makes the same point in verse 26. He looks to the birds of the heavens, and they're among the smallest creatures. And He, he now looks to the grass as a, another reminder that you and I are so much more important than the grass that was created for us to walk on, that is beneath us, you might say. The same is true for the lilies of the field, and this likely refers to a, a, a generic wildflower that would grow. Not a, a costly flower, but beautiful. That did nothing to exist and to, to be beautiful, but what God determined it would do. You know, it has beautiful hues, it, beautiful to behold, especially when you see an entire valley covered with them. God can provide for the smallest of His creation. How much more can He and will He provide for the crown of His creation? That Those who bear His image. And yet, emotions like fear and, and, and anger even can, can often speak louder to our consciences that, that we're alone, that we have this time gone too far. But not even the grass and the lilies are alone. None are forgotten by God and our part is, as the psalmist says, cease striving and know that I am God. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Well, before we conclude, there's a final observation here related to this truth. God will not only remember you, but God knows exactly what you need and He knows exactly when you need it. Yeah, that's what verse 31 tells us. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying... What shall we eat? What shall we put on? Verse 32, it's even plain, plainer. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. He hasn't forgotten about His church, about the members of His church. He knows what you need. And He knows when and how He'll answer that prayer. You know, if we can deduce from this that if we've been praying and praying and He has not been answering, it's not time for the prayer to be granted. You know, and in some cases, as prayer sometimes is, it's born of idolatry. If it's born of idolatry or fear or anything but faith, it won't be granted. This is what James tells us. That you ask and you don't receive because you ask it for it wrongly. You know, to spend it on your passions. God is not going to give you something that would enable you in your idolatry or in in a covetous desire or, or something that we may not realize would harm us later. How many prayers? Can you remember some prayers that if God had answered them would be your undoing? You remember the spouse you married? You remember the one you prayed for? What would, what would happen if you married that way? I could answer that. I wouldn't be here today. What he tells us in verse 33 is, is indispensable to overcoming fear and anxiety and worry. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all of these things will be added to you. Sure, we're going to have times where we wonder, we doubt, where we struggle. 
But don't focus on all these things that will be added to you. He says, seek first the kingdom of God. It's very practical and attainable. You know, rather than frantically gathering and surrounding ourselves with possessions and things that we perceive would protect us, worship God. Let that be your emphasis. Let that be your focus. Uh, One great way to to manage fear and anxiety is, is what you're doing here tonight. Worshiping. Go in the morning and come back in the evening and be involved with Bible studies and any outreach opportunities. You know, get to know neighbors, invite friends, invite family to church. Seek first His kingdom to build it and pray for the lost. Because as we look to God, then we forget our problems. I remember, I go back to Judges chapter 6, Gideon was hiding from the enemy, the Midianites, who had been ransacking the land and taking all their food. God knows they needed food. And yet God appears to him, hiding out, and says, Hail, man of valor, go and deliver Israel. Uh, He says, if God is with me, if God is with us, then why has all of this happened to us? And then he follows it up. Where's the promise that we heard from our fathers? You know, all the promises of his deliverance from the past, Egypt, the wilderness, You know what I like most about it? God never answers that question. He just says, go in this power of yours and save Israel. He says, I'm not going to answer questions of why. I'm not going to answer questions of how. You have all the power you need. I am with you. And if you've read the story, you know how it ends. With thousands and thousands of men are pared down to 300 men. Just a few. And they don't even really fight. They just enclose torches and clay pots, and when the trumpet sounds, they break them, and light fills the valley, and the enemy is disoriented, and they turn their swords on one another. It's kind of silly. It's a miracle. The army did nothing. God is able to destroy the source of our fear in, in a thousand different ways. He only requires that we look to Him. But He is all-sufficient, all-caring, and certainly willing to meet all of our desires and needs. And let that be our prayer tonight as we close. Lord, would you search our hearts as uh, many of us throughout our days deal with fear and doubt. Lord, as we look at the headlines, as we look at the nightly news, it is easy to meditate upon the problem. Lord, help us to fix our gaze upon the exalted Christ, and you, our Father, who reigns, who rules the nations with an iron rod, who is perfectly at peace and calm and is more than able to satisfy us and to protect us. Lord, help us to have that vision, that gaze. Forgive us for where our eyes have not been upon you, your goodness, your power, and your willingness to save. And strengthen us as we go forth from this place, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.